I'd love for you to open up your Bibles to Colossians 1, and uh, we're going to be um, picking up our series, so we've been looking at the whole theme of um, incarnate, incarnation, embodiment. We began two weeks ago with trying to just uncover some of the significance, the theological significance of the fact that you're not just a spirit that has a body like a shell, but that you actually are a body, and what that means um, in a biblical worldview, what it means, the significance for the way you enjoy God's creation, the way you engage with your work, how you view yourself, um, these kinds of things which are just hugely important, especially in our day and age where we're so split on this issue. There's a kind of idolatry surrounding the body uh, mixed with an absolute disdain of um, you know, physical things and, inter- and manual work and these kinds of things over the elevation of the intellectual and the spiritual and things like this. So we were trying to tr- just trying to smash some of that from a biblical worldview. And then last week we um, looked at the whole theme of the fact that the Bible's really honest about our brokenness, that we are bodies, but that our bodies are broken, and that because they're broken, there's this groaning in our flesh, this desire that God will come and do something new. This desire to, uh, not to be unclothed, Paul says, but to be further clothed, to be further clothed in our um, new bodies. And so we want to get to kind of the heart of it today. Um, The word incarnate, incarnation, usually refers to Jesus. And so we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus today. And I hope that you're going to start to see Christmas through a new lens on account of the things we've been already talking about. If you haven't been tracking with us so far, don't worry. I think you'll understand everything just as a standalone today. But here's where I want us to begin. Just in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read verse 15 to 20, and then uh, we'll take it from there. He is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and, and here you can take a mental underliner and just put a circle around here, for him. Everything that you see that's created was created for him, for Jesus. It belongs to him, and he loves it. It's all his. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the incarnation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. A little phrase, to reconcile to himself all things, is the part we're going to leap off from today and try and uncover what were God's, God's purposes in, in giving us Jesus as a man. And here's the big word we've got to get hold of. It's redemption. When we think about what God's intentions were for the planet that we're on and just wanting to paint it all very broadly for you right from the start, and where we're going is these ideas that God's design was not abandonment of his project or destruction of it, nor was it just starting again somewhere new. 
in some other place, like a failed kind of prototype. You know, when people test something, it breaks, and they start again with a new one, and the prototype goes in the cupboard or in the trash. It wasn't that. Rather, what he wanted to do was come and take this world and rebuild and remake and redeem. We've got a guy um, who has a garage just a few doors down from where we live, and every weekend he'll spend hours um, with his car, which is an old, I think it's a 1970s Triumph. And this thing is a thing of beauty. Seth absolutely adores it. He always wants to go and chat to Winston and, and, and play with the steering wheel and, and touch it and you know, get his fingerprints on this beautifully chromed thing. But that's redemption. That's taking something that was rusting and dying and broken. Instead of just trashing it, he's wanted to improve it. It's actually better than it was when it was new. That's redemption. So here, I want us to think about what this means, how redemption works, and why Jesus, what Jesus' part was in that, why he took on flesh. We're going to be kind of painting with the big, broad brush today, nothing too detailed, but I hope that you're going to start to look at everything through a different lens as a result of what we're thinking about. It really impacts so much of our lives, and our future, and our hope, and what we imagine, and all this stuff. Here's my first big idea. That God always intended to complete what he began. When you read Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible, the creation narrative, the story of how God made the world, what is the thing that God keeps saying about everything that he makes as it unfolds day after day? What does he say? He says it's good, doesn't he? And of course, when he gets to creating humankind, he says it's very good. Which means that when we look at the world and when we look at this created, the stuff of the world, physical matter, and all that we have around us, although we know it's tainted, everything that's good in it is a reflection of God's bounty, his generosity, even of his happiness. An unhappy God would not make a world where you can experience such exquisite pleasure and delight. God's happiness is infused in the creation, in its beauty, in everything that you enjoy in laughter, and in burgers, and in, and in beautiful art, and a, a stunning face, and all these things. Everything that is just, that's, that, 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 that kind of sparks off the nervous system, I'd say originally was just a reflection of God's bounty, generosity, and his beauty, and his happiness. Which is why, as Christians, we're, we're not killjoys, but rather true hedonists, pleasure seekers. We just want to find pleasure in the right way. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So then you say to me, well, what about, what about um, the fact that so many of the pleasures that we enjoy are sinful? are kind of damaging to ourselves and damaging to others. And the world is being wrecked by hedonism and pleasure-seeking. How does that fit with what I'm just saying? I think the answer is there in what Paul says. This is something I've already covered, but I just want to sort of resummarize it for you. He says, it's, nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And in there, I think we've got a really helpful angle or foothold in which we can begin to understand how sin works. Sin is taking pleasure 
without thanksgiving. For one of two reasons. Either because you can't give thanks. Because you know it's wrong. So when you indulge something and you're unable to turn to God with an open face, as it were, and just say thank you to him, then your conscience is telling you that, you're, that something's going wrong here, that the pleasure you're indulging is, is, a, is a broken or warped version of his good creation. Or either you can't say thanks or you don't want to say thanks because you just know it's wrong. And this is why when Adam and Eve were made in the garden, the garden was beautiful and lush, and all the fruit was hanging there for their pleasure. And what was the one thing they wanted was the tree that they were not allowed to taste. So when they tasted of the tree and indulged in, that, in its fruit, you notice the thing that they couldn't do, of course, was to give thanks to God. How could they? They knew that they just trampled on his word and gone against his, his instruction. That's why when Paul's talking about sin in Romans 1, he talks about it as an absence of thanksgiving. He says in Romans 1.21, he says, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God, he's talking about humankind, or give thanks to him. So sin somehow is the warping of everything that God's made that's good, so that we, we snatch it, take it, indulge in it, have a greed and lust for it, outside of the channel of his grace and of thanksgiving. Does that make some sense to you? And so the planet was wrecked. It was wrecked by our desires, run amok, by our lack of trust that he had a better plan for us than the one we construct for ourselves. And then the question comes, what's God going to do with a planet that has been abused, distorted, raped by our sin? What's God going to do with the creation now that everything that he made for our delight and enjoyment has become something twisted and dark and, and, and often perverted with our own desire? What's God going to do with that? I want to just use a kind of an analogy here for you to try and just get a handle on, on this. You know, back in the 1970s, late 1970s, two men uh, founded a company which would change the world. And um, their names were Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And uh, Wozniak was the, the genius uh, creator who made the first sort of Apple computer. And Steve Jobs was just the all-round sort of marketing, creativity guy. And they, they founded this company in 1979. When uh, I remember seeing an interview with Steve Jobs a little while ago, and you see the wonder and the, his, his heart that's captivated by the work of creativity. And in that way, he mirrors God, his creator. He was saying how, um, as a kid, he remembers watching a documentary, and uh, he was looking at the efficiency of movement on land among different types of creatures. And it ranked, you know, different types of creatures, whether they had four legs, whether they could slither. You know, humans were there, ranked among all these different creatures. And then it showed your efficiency, how much energy you need to move a certain distance when you add in a bicycle. And suddenly this thing was off the charts. A certain amount of energy could get you an incredibly long distance. And he was suddenly captivated by the idea of creating. And that passion is the passion that we've become familiar with that drove so much of what Apple created. But do you know that back in, in the 1980s, 1984, they created the Macintosh One computer, which kind of ch- was a game changer for how computers were going to go. 
And then a year later, Steve Jobs was evicted from Apple through a power struggle. And he was no longer an employee or the CEO of that company. Famous story. I know many of you are familiar with this. It wasn't until 12 years later in 1997 uh, when Steve Jobs' new company was purchased by Apple, his company was next and they merged, that he then became the CEO again of Apple. But Apple, in all that time, had been in the wilderness. The wrong people had been in power. It's kind of a picture of this world, isn't it? When the wrong people, the power struggle, the rightful ruler is evicted, and then things are just in the wilderness. Suddenly, the dark powers like Microsoft and IBM are taking over, <laughs> taking over the world scene of, of, of personal computing. But 1997, all that began to change. Steve Jobs was back, and he had his, his, his young apprentice, John, Johnny Ive, and they began creating products that began to change all of our lives. You know, starting with the iMac, the colorful computers, which now just look like a toy, don't they? But they were pretty groundbreaking at the time. And then the iPod. And then, you know, it was all history from there. And in that, you can start to see, well, think about as an analogy of this planet. When God was looking at this planet, he had a few options. He, there was option one, which was just total abandonment. Turning his back on the whole project and letting it just smash and burn up, whatever. That's another option was the one which most people think is what's on offer through faith, through religion, whether our religion or other religions, which is... Salvation by escape. So the kind of ejector seat theology. Yes, this planet's broken, but there's going to be a few people who are going to be plucked out of all the mess and brought into a new thing. And the trouble is that that's how often people think about what it means to be saved as a Christian. You're going to be pulled out and brought into heaven. But here's, let me just give you a few problems that I have with that. As I mean, I just think it's theologically wrong, but also problems... Practically, why it just doesn't work in our hearts. Here's the first one. How can we look forward to something that we can't imagine over the earth which we do enjoy right now? You know, we're called to be heavenly minded, but how can you be excited about a heaven which you can't even get your head around? And so it begins, when we have this idea, this ethereal idea of what heaven is, it actually cuts against all of our basic desires and loves and passions. Here's another problem I have with it. Why would you build anything now if it's all just going to get destroyed and count for nothing in the end? All of your effort and energy involved in, in building and creating and all of it is just wasted. Here's another problem I have with it. Why would you care for a sinking ship? You know, the way one peop- some people put it is like arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, why would you take care of the planet, of your body, of, of God's creation, if it's all just destined for absolute annihilation and destruction. And here's my last problem. Why, why do anything as a Christian beyond full-time rescuing souls? Now, I don't want to in any way diminish that as our primary calling to be people who preach the gospel and see people get saved and come to know Jesus. It's absolutely primary. But if it's all about pulling people, like life putting them into lifeboats on a sinking ship, then why don't we just all do that all of the time and nothing else? Because the Bible doesn't actually tell us that that's what our lives are all about. Part of the reason is because the Bible has a different view of what this planet's destiny is. 
that God promised something better. He promised a complete redemption of all of this. So that the end would be quite a lot like the beginning. Danny was describing it in his prayer, the perfect world, but actually new and improved, better, superior in certain ways, because the world that we're in would be full of God's glory. I want to show you just from a few scriptures why this is, was always God's plan and why this was the answer to prayer. Psalm 57. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I don't think we've seen that come to pass yet. So what would it look like when this psalm's prayer is fulfilled, when God's glory is over all the earth? He says it again in the last verse. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Here's another one, Psalm 72. It says, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Just remember, these are the prayers that God's teaching us to pray because they're in his prayer book. If God's intention for this world is just to let it all crash and burn, then he has no intention to fulfill the prayers he told us to pray. Right? He's told us to pray, let your glory come and fill this planet. I don't think we've seen it happen yet. What would it look like if it did? Here's another one, Habakkuk. Actually, this is a really tricky book to find. I didn't, I didn't put a bookmark in here. Anyway, in a paraphrase, it says, the whole earth is going to be full of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. It's in Habakkuk 2, verse 14. You can check it out, even though I can't find it. Revelation 21. I'm right, yeah? Good. Revelation 21. Here's the end of the story. When the new heavens and new earth are, are, are being talked about here in Revelation 21, you ever notice what it says? He says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, but then he says he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. And what does he say? He doesn't say we were all beamed up there, like up to Star Trek Enterprise, to let this planet just explode. He says something quite different. He says he saw this new Jerusalem coming down from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And just in case you haven't joined the dots yet, towards the end of that chapter, verse 23, he says, This city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In other words, he's pointing, painting the picture of a, a future where the glory of God now inhabits this planet and, and is its light. God's glory is here. Now, I, I don't, I'm not saying that we're meant to understand it in a fully literal sense, but it's pointing us towards something very real. In fact, we can go a little bit further than that here. This is where it starts to get to be a bit of a mind-bender. He says just then in the next verse, By its light will the nations walk, this is verse 24, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. He says that again. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. 
Now, these are the kinds of verses that you read over and don't actually meditate on or think about. There's a little book uh, written by a guy a couple of decades ago called When the Kings Come Marching In. And he was describing or speculating or thinking about what does this mean? When you think about what are the glory of kings, the glory of kings is the beauty of the nations they rule and everything wonderful about the nations on the planet. And he's saying here that not only are we going to have God's glory come down with the new Jerusalem to earth to fill the earth, but also as the kings come marching in, in other words, the governments and presidents and all, of the, all the nations of the world begin to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, somehow their glory also is going to be brought into this new kingdom. I remember reading this book and he starts speculating, well, does that mean that we're going to see some of the most incredible creativity and wonders of this world in the new, in the new heavens and the new earth? And while I don't actually fully know the answer to that, I think it's definitely hinted at in the Bible. It's a game changer for how you think about this planet. Is God just going to wipe the slate clean and start afresh? Or does all that we make and all that we achieve as, an, as representatives of God, as his image, as his bearers and his creators in his name, does somehow all the best of it get drawn up into this new heavens and new earth, this new creation? We could talk about that all day long, and we're not going to. <laughs> but it's all wrapped up in that word that we read right at the start when we read Colossians 1. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. Reconcile to himself all things. Do you think that reconciliation looks like smashing and obliteration? It doesn't, does it? God's always intended to complete what he started. Here's the second big idea. We needed a champion for this redemption to take place. So this is the question we've been leading to and kind of the heart of the whole series. Why did God need to come in human flesh? What does the incarnation tell us about God's intentions for this world? Let me just paint it in another picture. We talked a bit about apples, a company. Now just let me use a different image. Imagine that what we're talking about here is an airplane jumbo jet that's been hijacked. The rightful pilot has been put to one side, locked in a cupboard, or worse. And the whole thing is careening towards destruction, and there is an evil man in the cockpit holding the joystick, steering this thing. Again, three scenarios. One is the, the plane crashes, everything is, is destroyed. Here's another one. A few escape. Let's say there are a few parachutes, maybe an ejector seat or two, and people escape, but still most of it is just absolutely obliterated and destroyed, and they escape to somewhere, something, I don't know what. But here's the third scenario, and this is what the Bible says is a storyline here. The third scenario is that someone emerges, a hero emerges from within the plane. We heard the stories, didn't we? Um, what happened in 9-11, where some... One of the flights that was bound, I think, for the White House was uh, men began to take, regain control of the plane. Imagine a hero emerges from the back row and rests control back to steer this thing to his intended des- destination. That's how the Bible paints the picture. Let me just give it to you in, in five quick chapters that the Bible talks about. 
The first was began in Genesis 1 with the call for dominion. Adam's charge, do you remember how we read this a couple of weeks ago? Adam's charge in Genesis 1 and 2 was to have dominion over the planet, to rule it. In other words, Adam was appointed as the king of this planet, and his wife Eve was appointed as the queen. That was the original intention, the call for dominion. Chapter 2, the fall. Adam failed to rule as he was meant to rule. He allowed the serpent to deceive Eve, and then he was deceived by Eve himself. And so everything was upended, where he was meant to have dominion over creation. Creation began to have dominion over him, and the fall happened. And what they left was a massive power vacuum. Who was now going to rule the planet now that Adam had disqualified himself? Chapter 3 is the era of promise. We know that the, the world is now in the hands of the evil one, is what the Bible says, in the power of the evil one. But there is still this hope, this seed, this mo- mention of promise that be- is right there at the beginning in Genesis 3. In verse 15, when God's talking to the serpent, he says, I'll put enmity, enmity between you, it's hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring, your seeds, your descendants, and her offspring, seeds, or descendants. And then he's talking about the woman's seed. He says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And which one of those is more fatal? The era of promise began in the Bible. When they, say, they start talking about, there's going to be a descendant of Adam and of Eve who will transform the future of this planet. And he's spoken here as the offspring, or the word is seed. You skip forward a few chapters later into Genesis 12, and then Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 21. You start reading about God talking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham that you're going to have a seed. I'm going to promise you the gift of this seed. Who's this seed, this offspring that we're being, is being spoken about? Then you, you, you rustle forward through the pages of the Bible. You read on and on and on. Hundreds of years later, and we read about King David, this magnificent Messiah king who is just ruling with peace and justice. Amazing man. But he's not it. He's not the seed. And then he tells us in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to raise up from your descendants a son who will sit on your throne forever. Hang on, isn't that the kind of language, the kind of promise that you were saying about Adam right at the very beginning? But now he's a descendant not only of Adam, not only of Abraham, but of David specifically. Then you start reading on through the pages of the Bible. This again is hundreds of years later. And we arrive at these passages so familiar to us in places like Isaiah 9 and 11. For to us a child is born with all the blood and placenta and water and all the rest of it, this guy is flesh and blood. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government, the ruling, the dominion, the authority will be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Over in Isaiah 11, he starts to describe what happens when this 
this one who's from the stump of Jesse, in other words, descended from David, begins to take his place on the throne. It says, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full The earth, this earth, the one you're on, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The era of promise. Chapter 4, the unassuming rescuer. How unlikely a peasant born in a stable in a back corner of the earth becomes the serpent slayer when he goes to the cross. And yes, the serpent bruises his heel by taking his life on the cross, but he crushes the serpent's head because he defeats him once and for all. Which gives way to chapter 5, the redemption of all things. This savior who now rules is wrenching back control from the evil one. You're beginning to see how the storyline of the Bible, as I've been describing it. It's not let this planet just spin off into space and crash and burn, and then we'll start with something new. Jesus has come down in flesh to come and take his rightful place. I want you to now just see it through three, three ideas that come from, mainly from Hebrews 2. You might want to skip there, but I want to just explain this to you in a little bit more detail. Why did God need to send his son as a man? Three reasons. The first is this, because we needed a man to take Adam's seat. I've been describing for you how the throne, Adam's throne, the king of the planet, his throne was left vacant when he sinned and disqualified himself from leadership. It was filled by a demonic intruder. But even then, there's these hints that run through the Bible that God hasn't given up on mankind. So Psalm 8 is an example of that. He says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man? Or what is, it literally says, what is Adam? What is man? What is mankind? What is Adam? That you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. you put all things under his feet. Now that Psalm only makes about 50% sense when you read it. When you're looking around thinking, hang on, God has put creation under man's rulership, but in one sense, there's absolutely no way that man has a just rule, a good rule, a complete rule of the creation as it is. And then the lights begin to switch on. We jump forward to Hebrews chapter 2. And he, he quotes that very same psalm. Hebrews 2, verse 6. It's been testified somewhere. I don't know if he'd actually just forgotten which psalm it was. This is generally just the way he talked. It's been testified somewhere, he says. What is man that you're mindful of him? It's the same psalm. Or the son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him. Who? Jesus. He left nothing outside his control. 
So now you begin to see how the threads are tying together. What is Adam that you are mindful of him, or the son of Adam that you care for him? But yet you've made him, Adam Mark II, the ruler of this planet, Jesus, the embodied Savior, God taking on human flesh to take Adam's seat, to be in Adam's throne. We needed a man to take Adam's seat. Secondly, we needed a man to deal with our enemy. So if we read on in chapter 2 of Hebrews, down to verse 14, he says in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. So he's talking about our humanity, our embodied nature, not just our spirits. He very deliberately uses that expression. He says, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. The incarnation, Christmas. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring, the seed, the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He's telling us that if God's intention was only ever to save spirits, things would have looked very different. He says in verse 16, it's not to angels that, that he helps, but he helps the offspring, the descendants, the physical bearers of Abraham's DNA and those who are spiritual ch- children of Abraham. He want, therefore, he had to take a body. He had to take a body partly to satisfy God's justice. It's there in verse 17. He had to be a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Which means that God had to pour out all his anger against our sin on a human body. Christ's own body. But it's also so that he could beat the devil in death, which he tells us in verse 14. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He's like our evil prosecutor, haranguing us in a court of law until he gets the verdict he wants, which is death. So God gave him that verdict by allowing Jesus, the ultimate man, to die for us. And so you begin to see the only reason why God effected a salvation plan that involved his son becoming human was because he wanted to rescue the entirety of your humanity and of this world that we see and touch and smell and joy. He needed a body to do that. It's how John Piper describes Christ's need of a body to do this for us. He says, the incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. He means the nails that went through Jesus' hands and his feet. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. The soldier inserted it there right up into his heart. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss and there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. 
He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall, in other words, no anesthetic, so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. He needed a body to rescue us and our bodies. Also, we needed a man to lead the way into the new creation. You know, when I'm talking about the future of this world, one of the things that you can easily give way to is the sense of, well, it's been a while now, 2,000 years since Jesus came and did this for us. Are we really sure that this is the future of the planet? And, and Hebrews 2, just very honestly, says, verse 8, at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. So let's look around us. We honestly don't see. We're told that Jesus beat the devil on the cross, but it seems like the devil's still running riot, rampant, killing and destroying. It seems like humans are still indulging in all of their lusts that, that destroy one another and destroy the planet we're in. We're still ripping each other apart. So what kind of victory did Jesus win when he won, when he won on the cross? What kind of victory was it? He says, quite honestly, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But then he goes on, he says, but, but we see him. So we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so you need to understand this huge connecting idea. The reason why I know it's going to happen. Why I know that this planet is going to be redeemed and made new and made perfect. And why you are going to be redeemed and made new and made perfect in a new body. The reason why I know it for absolute certain is because it's already begun. Where? In Jesus' own body. When he rose from the dead that third day in the tomb, and was given his new resurrection body, which still bore the marks of his suffering, the holes in his hands and in his side, but at the same time was new. I mean, this new body did things like disappearing and appearing in rooms, locked rooms. But at the same time, it was much like our bodies. He ate fish on a barbecue on the beach and walked and talked with disciples. Do you know that was the first building block of the new world, the new creation, that God is bringing everything towards. It's already, it already started. If this was just a future projection, just a prophecy, with nothing concrete for us to think of or touch or handle, then we would be forgiven for doubting that it's ever going to take place. But the fact of the resurrection and the fact of Jesus' humanity in his resurrection, and the fact that he is still a man because he ascended in his body to heaven to be with God forever and to make intercession for us as your high priest, all of these facts tell you without doubt that God's intention is in the wake of Christ to bring all of creation to this kind of renewal. He was just the first piece. And here's the difference. Whereas in Genesis 1, you see the order of God making the world And then the creatures, and finally mankind, he does it in exact reverse with the new creation. He starts with the king, the rightful king, and then he's going to bring everything else into order behind him. 
Let's bring it to our last big idea. This means that now we can look at this world with hope. I think there's a huge amount of pessimism about this world. Something somewhere is going to destroy us. That's the general consensus eventually. I think David Attenborough just this week was describing humankind as the plague on the planet. We're the disease. We're the problem. We're the reason this planet is is wrecked. And in in many ways, he's actually right from a biblical point of view. But he's also only half right, because we're also the solution. Or a man is the solution. I can put it like that. If we don't ruin the planet, then artificial intelligence might ruin the planet. Cheers, Chris. Chris is helping develop artificial intelligence. And uh, there's a lot of fear. What's going to happen when that thing runs amok and starts taking over? It's going to be iRobot, for real. There's fear that, you know, antibiotic-resistant drugs, MRSI and the like, are going to wipe us all out. There's fear that a meteor might hit us. Something's going to happen to wreck everything. But when we look what the Bible has to say about the future of this planet, there's a deep, deep optimism. Yes, there's all these problems. But Paul says the creation's going to be set free from its bondage to corruption, he says in Romans 8. It's going to be set free. And it's going to attain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Which means that we look at it with new eyes. I was was reading to you Isaiah 11, where it's describing the wolf lying down with the lamb and the beauty of the new creation where there is peace and harmony and order. One of the ways where that's going to be most notable... It's going to be in our experience of this world. We're going to have things like this. We're going to be able to eat without greed. Enjoy food without feeling like you have to go back for thirds. (laughs) There's going to be admiration without lust. Now, I wonder what that would feel like to be able to look at beauty without even a tiny aspect of lust in looking, the desire to conquer and to possess. There's going to be excitement without letdown. So often on the other side of enjoyment comes the crashing feeling of being morose and often depressed. And the new creation will have joy that is lasting. There's going to be leadership without abuse. There's going to be work without burnout. You think heaven is just sitting around all day. No way. Work is one of the best gifts God's given to us. And the first thing God told Adam to get on with in the perfect world, tend the garden, have dominion over the planet. But work is also the root for so many idols, isn't it? How we get our identity now from our work. So we slave away. How we're abused by leaders over us. And how we try and justify our existence through what we create. Imagine work stripped from all of those idols. That's work in the new creation. That's work as God intended it. There'll be service without self-interest. You know, I find it very hard just to offer someone a cup of coffee without a little bit 
of the hope of a rebounding glory. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like some of you guys show up early and you arrange chairs, and I love you for it. But I'm betting even just in the corner of our hearts, there's a desire for a little bit of that rebound of glory, isn't there? It's very hard to serve without self-interest. The new creation will be service, which is entirely for the glory of Jesus. The new creation will be waiting without disappointment. We'll learn what patience is like when it gives birth to the beauty of discovery. As God unfolds new things to us through eternity. It's not going to be like you get it all up front. It's going to get better and better. There'll be learning without pride. And without forgetting, I'd imagine. Learning is one of God's greatest gifts to us. So often it's, it's, it's bound up with us becoming so puffed up in, the, in what we know. Frustrated in what we lack and don't know or our in, you know, inabilities. To imagine being in a new creation where there is nothing but sheer delight as we continue to learn more about God and his, and his creation. New discoveries. New creativity. There'll be worship without ever the slightest bit of resistance in your heart or coveting Christ's rightful place on the throne. Because we will be gathered round the throne, worshipping him, looking like a lamb who'd been slain. I don't think our minds will be wiped clean of what we did in this life and the reasons why we needed a slain lamb. I think we'll be able to remember our sins, our rebellion against God, the very things which were put on Jesus at the cross. But I think you'll see it with more clarity than ever before, so that it won't give birth to misery and self-loathing and wretchedness. It will give birth to more an increasing, deep delight in our Savior. I remember what I was. I remember who I was and the things I did and the shameful things that, that were true of me. But now I see Christ looking like a lamb who'd been slain. This is how he's described in Revelation as the worshipers gather around him. And we're celebrating his death for all eternity. Not with grief at our own mistakes and rebellion, but with delight. With nothing but delight that he did it for me. And you'll love him more every day. As you learn more about his character and his will toward you. If you're not a Christian, I want to ask you whether you want to have a possession in that new world. I think that to become a Christian is kind of like buying a plot of land in the new creation. You know, we see so often people invest in stuff in this world, often for retirement, 
you know, that home in the country where you're going to make it perfect and put all your money in a nice big pension pot. And hopefully you'll live off that money in pleasure for the rest of your years. But too often people are ripped out of life too early. They don't get to enjoy that stuff. And even as they're enjoying it, their body is decaying. The pleasures are diminishing. I think, is that really what we're meant to live for? Just here and now, with all that we know we're going to lose? But to be a Christian is to say, I, I want that kind of joy and delight and pleasure, but I want it in a lasting way. And I think Jesus has got the answer for me. He told me that I can lay up treasures in heaven. In other words, preparing them for the new creation. He told me that I can get rewards in eternity. How? By surrendering my life fully to him and obeying him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Saying, I want to have a plot of land in the new heavens and the new earth where I can live and dwell and worship Jesus for eternity. And so you start rejigging how you live your life. You start thinking, okay, well, if it's all about that future, I'm going to invest a little bit less in the here and now. Just enough so I can get by. But mainly it's going to be about living for Christ. In fact, it's all going to be about living for Christ. And here's an invitation to you. This stuff is as real as Christ's resurrection is real. And I want to invite you to give yourself to this. <laughs> I would love to pray with you if you're not a Christian or have never made that decision. I would love to pray with you. Because Jesus made the door open for anyone who wants to be his follower. If you are a Christian, I guess what this is is a call to live with this reality now. Christians live torn lives, double-minded lives, lives with one foot in eternity and one foot on the earth, one foot wanting to obey Jesus, the other sort of just conflicted and running after other things. You realize that, that one foot is, is very unstable. And this is an invitation to live with the future God has in mind, which means First of all, you've got to live this new life in you now. Are you displaying it to the world? Are you kind of mirroring what God's, God's future is going to look like in the way you live now? The grace of Christ flowing through you. But it also means that if this is your sure and certain future, are your choices matching up with the future that we have in store? The way that you are handling your time and talents and resources the way that you're handling your desires. Christ wants to bring all of it into submission to himself so that you can experience pleasures evermore at his right hand for all eternity. Why don't we just bow our heads and pray together? If any of what I've said today doesn't make sense, don't worry. Hang on to the stuff you get. You've heard about Jesus enough times now to understand the greatness of what he's done for you and the guarantee of the future he's won for you. 
And the only way we can rightly respond to what I'm talking about is through adoration of him. So let's do that together now. Jesus, we want to confess, declare, state your lordship. You're the offspring of Eve, of Abraham, of David. You've taken your rightful seat on the throne. When you crush the serpent's head, for all time you guaranteed your plan to win this planet back to yourself. Thank you that all things are now reconciled to you in principle, even if we don't see it in reality. But thank you that we see you, the one who suffered on our behalf, the one who was raised on our behalf, the first building block of your new creation. Lord, as we now approach the Christmas season, We want to do so with awe-filled hearts. We want to enjoy your good gifts to us, but enjoy them with thanksgiving, with delight in you. We want to take pleasure without lust, without greed. And we want to begin to live out the goodness of this new world, even now. As the new world begins to overlap the old one. Knowing that we're new creations in Christ. Yes, we're plagued by the frustration of sin. And how we have to keep putting to death the deeds of the body. But we also know, Lord, you put within us a seed of life. You've begun your new creation even in our own hearts. And so, Lord, I pray, teach us to bow to you in total surrender. To honor you as Lord, as the second Adam, as the one who is ruling and reigning. To hold nothing back. To be wholly devoted. Conquer our hearts, Lord. Conquer our desires. Bring us into true surrender. Stem our wicked rebellion. Cut it off, Lord. Give us a deeper capacity to love you, to adore you, to worship you. Show us what it means for all our delights to be found in true surrender to you. Jesus, you are Lord. And there is none like you. You reign above the heavens. You're king over this earth. Be exalted in this city, in this church, in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.